0: My name is Chloe Valdery. I am the founder of the Theory of Enchantment. We teach people how to love, and more specifically, when it comes to the business world, we teach businesses how to build a culture of trust and belonging and inclusion. And I have been working on this since December of 2018, so about almost five years. And it's good to be here with you, David.
1: Great. Yeah. Thank you for making the time. Um, So can you explain the theory of enchantment and how it differs from other diversity training programs?
0: Sure. So as you point out, we are a diversity training organization. We have workshops as well as an online course that we put employees through. We have three guiding principles. The first principle is treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. Mm. The second principle is criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down, never to destroy. And the third principle is try to root everything you do in love and compassion. And I would say the principal way in which we differ with other uh, diversity organizations, uh, one of the principal ways is that we start with the premise that supremacy or supremacist ways of thinking is actually a coping mechanism that human beings use to deal with pain. And so the supremacist or the person who is sort of caught up in a supremacist mindset or ideology um, actually feels an incredibly deep sense of worthlessness for which they overcompensate by reaching for this notion that they are superior to others. And the way to correct that is for all of us as human beings to get in right relationship with ourselves and with the complexity of the fullness of our being so that we don't project our insecurities and our pain and our hurt onto other people, but instead learn to transform our insecurities, transform our sorrow into something holistic, integrated and good. Other diversity organizations do not have that or do not share that lens when it comes to an analysis of supremacy. Um, and I personally find many other diversity organizations to be rooted in a scarcity paradigm, uh, which is to say they simply break down or they offer a very basic heuristic of oppressor versus oppressed. Uh, if you are the oppressed, then you are Pure victim, and if you are the oppressor, then you are a perfect monster. Mm. And the simple response is to transfer whatever power, resources, etc., the oppressor has to the oppressed class. And I'm being a little bit reductive, perhaps. Some would mm. argue, and unfair in my analysis or in my regurgitation of this ideology. And I think that, that that's a fair response, but I'm just shortening it for the purposes of this conversation.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, and, and so what was it that initially inspired you to develop the theory of enchantment?
0: Yes, I, my major was international studies and I studied the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which happens to be popping off again at the present moment. Um, and I developed the theory of enchantment as a way to bring in a more humanizing language to confront and address both the Israeli and Palestinian communities, as opposed to a more litigious, polemical language that was being, uh, fostered or cultivated in, in both sides, so to speak. Um, so, That's my background. Uh, My major was in international studies with a concentration in conflict and diplomacy. So I worked on this concept of enchantment uh, at the Wall Street Journal for a year from 2015 to 2016. Uh, And then I uh, sort of honed the concept. And then in 2018, I left the international conflict world Hmm. and created an organization called Theory of Enchantment and sort of shopped it around, did lectures and such. And the response that I got was that this was not only applicable to international conflict, but to all types of conflict, interpersonal conflict, conflict in the workplace, conflict in schools, social emotional learning for students. And I was then encouraged to create a fully flesh out a curriculum based upon the three principles. I then did that and started marketing the curriculum to high schools. Um, this was around again, 2018, 2019, and the curriculum did not sell. Like I wasn't successful at selling the curriculum to schools, but I was successful at uh, lecturing at, at student assemblies about diversity, specifically within the lens of the theory of enchantment. And um, at some point in 2020, uh, companies started finding the theory of enchantment. I was you know, a lot of podcasts, so on and so forth. So companies started finding theory of enchantment and they started telling me essentially that the theory of enchantment was actually an alternative to other diversity and inclusion trainings that they were being exposed to. Um, And that's where I sort of stumbled upon product market fit in that sense. So there's been a lot of meandering and turns and twists of the journey of the theory of enchantment, but ultimately the theory of enchantment is my attempt to ask the question, how might we actually learn how to love each other in the midst of conflict, whether it's deeply entrenched or whether it's you know something that's only uh, developed in the past months mm. or years
1: It's not based in any therapeutic principles because
0: um what do you mean by that?
1: Well, it just seems to me um, to one of the things that is really lacking in other diversity uh, programs is that they, they seem to fail to understand the very basic principle in therapy that you know if you want someone to open up and if you're trying to show them something, let's say um, some, something that they do in their own life that is harmful to them and you, you're the therapist and you're trying to uh, point this out to them, you don't do it by lecturing and scolding. That's just day one basic stuff. Uh, you do it by establishing a connection and maybe getting them to realize it themselves this is very, this is, you know, this is almost we we almost think of it as common sense now but this is sort of, you know, therapeutic, basic therapeutic practice you seem to be coming from that tradition of like you know, connect with people first so that they're actually, they're like actively listening to you rather than, you know, oh, who is this DEI person I don't care about this Um, I'm just wondering if you, if you, if any of that is actively informing what you do, or if it's just sort of like something that you kind of knew as common sense.
0: So I have heard from other people, like other people have compared theory of enchantment to a therapeutic process or to a therapeutic approach, but I have never formally studied it. Hmm. So as a part of my major my major did include, for example, you know, classes on psychology and anthropology, which I think is probably one of the sciences that is the most formally connected to psychology. Um, so I would say that both the inclusion of anthropology and psychology in the classes that I took in school certainly helped shape my worldview and probably, you know, brought it closer to the therapeutic approach. I'm also just like super, super influenced by people like Carl Jung and many of the women colleagues that he had who wrote about the human condition, like Marion Woodman and Louis, marie Louise von France and people like that, who obviously come from a psychotherapeutic background. So, But I'm also, you know, Theory of Enchantment contains or, and cites many of those individuals as well as individuals who have been prominent in the world's wisdom traditions, which, is, when I say wisdom tradition, I mean religions. So the theory of enchantment samples from themes found in traditions from Christianity to Judaism to Buddhism to, um, you know, many different wisdom traditions around the world. So I think the fact that we are sampling from all of these traditions plus contemporary pop culture, uh, gives a very pro-human analysis of trying to love in the middle of conflict
1: mm that's well said um but as you're doing that how do you how do you know that you're succeeding what are what kind of success metrics do you use to assess your method
0: That's a great question. so for our online course, we give out uh surveys in between every mission so Basically, what happens is if you're a part of a team and you want to do our online course, which is called Enchantment Academy, you will, you're, do a mission per week. And there's 28 missions currently. That could change in the future, but that's what it is right now. Okay. And so 28 weeks of practice. Every mission is on average between 25 minutes to an hour. And every mission is studying or helping the player essentially study some facet of his or her humanness, whether it's related to parental baggage or it's related to using stoicism as a way to come back to the present moment or using nonviolent communication as a way to express yourself when you've been hurt without letting your emotions take over you. Each mission explores a different aspect of the human condition as well as a tool that can be used when someone faces experiences of conflict. Um, and so we get about, we ask our users to give feedback after every single mission, and then we integrate that feedback into the next iteration of the mission. And so we can tell based upon the questions that we ask whether or not a mission is doing well. So, for example, a mission, mission might be doing well. If someone says, you know, I'm able to see how I can bring this into my relationship with my manager or into my, into my relationship. With the person who I'm guiding as a manager or into my relationship with a customer who is acting angry or yelling. And instead of sort of like having my eyes blaze over and ignore that person or see that person as a caricature, I can actually employ active listening and be, uh, you know, as much of service as I possibly can. So those are indicators that the mission is working. Indications that we've seen that suggests the mission is not working actually has more to do with technical errors than with the substance of the mission itself. So mm. for example, this mission is too long. I didn't have time to actually go through it. This mission is uh, too abstract. I would like to see more specific examples that illustrate stoicism, just as an example. Mm. Um, so th- those are like two ways in which we might See positive and negative feedback. We have seen positive and negative feedback from some of our players. We also give, uh, surveys after our, what we call a marathon, which is our, uh, full day workshop. It's an in-person workshop. Um, it's usually, we, we, uh, table it at no more than 25 people because it's a very long workshop and it's also a very conversational workshop. Um, so we also give surveys after that and we receive feedback and then integrate that feedback accordingly.
1: Mm. So are these technical issues, are these the primary challenges you faced in uh, promoting your method or in delivering your method? Or are there others that are worth mentioning?
0: No, those are the primary uh, barriers. And they are really also, while they're challenges, they're also invitations. Because what we ultimately want to do is to get product market fit in the way that you know, the makers of Duolingo have gotten to product market fit. So the biggest challenge for us right now, the biggest puzzle for us to solve is like, how do we create, or how might we create five minute, 10 minute modalities that anchor our players in the theory of enchantment way of being, but they're just like 10 minutes at, at best, right? They're, they actually fit in with the person's schedule, they can do it every day. We can have like, you know, streak competitions the same way Duolingo has or the same way other games have. How do we actually increase retention of the material? I would say is the consistently over time with a lot of people is the biggest challenge we have right now.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. That leads into my next question, which is, um, can you give any specific examples of how pop culture can be used to teach compassion? Uh, because I would imagine that pop references would make it easier to have smaller bite, uh, missions, right? Like listen to this two minute song and, um, and also it would be, it, it seems to me that it would be useful for retention if you're using, I don't know, uh, TV shows or songs that people are already have an emotional connection with, then that would help them to retain any, um, any information that's affiliated with that in the mission. So. Uh, it would be great to hear more about how how you use pop culture in your method uh, to teach compassion and if you have any favorite pop references in that regard
0: Yeah, so pop culture is sprinkled throughout the entire theory of enchantment lexicon. I usually talk about like the easiest uh, uh, memory to recall is we teach the first principle for people like human beings about political abstractions. We often talk about Kendrick Lamar's line in DNA, where it says, I got power, poison, and pain, and joy inside my DNA. And we highlight that because it's an incredible uh, example of a poet who's able to convey the full complexity of who he is unabashedly of, of the, you know, the many contradictions or the many facets of what it means to be human. And we try to guide the player to be able to do the same over time another example would be like in our mission on parental baggage we have players wrestle with the song in the blood by John Mayer which is explicitly about parental baggage right like in that song John Mayer is like asking questions like how much of my mother has my mother left in me and so we might have the player listen to that song and then answer certain prompt questions about their own relationship With their parents or with their caretakers, and have them ask themselves the conscious question: What traditions do I want to carry that my, you know, caretakers passed down to me? And which and what ones do I want to rest? What ones do I want to, you know, not carry it over? Same for Fleetwood Mac's famous song "Landslide," where you know Stevie Nicks asks the question. Uh, She actually says explicitly in the beginning of the song, "This, "This is for you, Dad." Right? So. There's a lot of, uh, the mission on parental baggage is actually very, very easy to cite the use of the pop culture because it's so explicit in some of the songs we have people wrestle with.
1: Hmm. That's interesting because um, I would imagine by using pop culture like that, again, this, this makes me think of therapy, but it, you know, the right song will prime someone in a particular emotional way to make them more, you know, more open, more available for this kind of work. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, well, any good song will do that. But, you know, if you happen to hit someone with the right song, they might suddenly be very vulnerable in a particular way.
0: Sure.
1: Yeah, that's very effective. I've I've never, uh, to my knowledge, you're the only one doing this, uh, using... That's
0: also true to my knowledge. Sorry? <laughs> I said that's also true to my knowledge.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh... With all the work that you do, it makes me wonder in your in your own life, how do you engage people who have very different political views from your own? Are you using these methods or sort of uh, kind of from your conflict resolution days? Or do you have um, a method for engaging people who, uh, let's say, for instance, I mean, uh, as I as I mentioned before, we started recording. You know the recent um, the Gaza attacks in Israel are in my mind because I'm having uh, disagreements with people in my life that are the disagreements over this issue are quite intense. And yeah. and um, you know, I guess I suppose one approach is not to engage. That's that's a yeah. common you know, don't talk politics at, uh, what is it? Uh, at the dinner table, um, politics and religion.
0: Well, religion yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but let's say that you do want to engage, uh, how do you do it? How do you do it? And how do you recommend people to do it? Um, you know, in their with, with people that they know, conflict resolution, political views and such.
0: I mean, I do think that all that the Lee principles are a good, uh, uh, set of principles to try to hold yourself uh, accountable to when engaging with someone over any political disagreement, over any politically charged uh, thing. But also just recognizing when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, people's people's like sense of their own identity, people's sense of self is like super, super wrapped up in this conflict more than, let's say, the average conflict that that might come across our, our news feeds on an average day, on a regular basis, right? And there's many historical reasons for that. Um, you know, If we were living in China, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict would probably be less relevant to us uh, from an identity perspective. So I think it's important to be aware of that, that like what's often being, what's often present but not being articulated is that deep sense of like, the question, am I worthy? Do I matter? Do I have meaning? Uh, and then from there, we sort of like form a lot of our base opinions or uh, set base set of feelings on this conflict in particular. So I think just like knowing that, knowing that people are often coming from that perspective is important. And it's important to like, when I disagree with someone to recognize or to be able to acknowledge that like I see them, like and affirm them as much as possible because what will often happen is people will and I've done this as well people will hear what I say as an attack on who they are right or people or I will hear what other people say as an attack on who I am and to be able to separate the two uh, to be able to 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 notice how when some people are saying, quite frankly, things I find absolutely morally repugnant, oftentimes what is underneath that is a defensive mechanism to try and absolutely defend their sense of worthiness or to defend their sense that they matter um, or to validate their you know, emotions, whether those emotions be anger or rage So one of the things that, you know, we teach at the theory of enchantment, actually one of the missions this week is about the yin-yang and uh, this idea of being with your feelings and allowing yourself to feel your feelings without allowing your feelings to control you. And this is a very subtle distinction, right? So like I can feel anger, I can feel rage, I can be with those feelings without repressing them, And without allowing myself to be carried away by them and, you know, therefore hurtful towards other people. So really what we're calling for is this capacity to be incredibly responsible with and to ourselves. And, you know, the the word simply means the ability to respond. It's an attuning word. It's a musical word, right? The same way that you would attune to the proper way to play guitar or attune to the proper way to play drums. One is trying in the theory of enchantment to attune to themselves, to listen to themselves, such that whatever is rising within themselves, whatever is rising within myself, I can, I can channel in a balanced way. And so I think that that is really the, the invitation for us when we're talking about political disputes, whether of a, of a, you know, tiny nature or as large as they are implicated by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is the general orientation that we are challenging and summoning people to actually embody.
1: Hmm. So a validation and uh, to, to be mindful, to validate as much as you can, and to, um, to remember that you don't necessarily have to agree with feelings that you have. <laughs> you can observe them and say, oh, I'm angry right now, but I don't have to let that inform what I'm saying. And, and-
0: well. Yeah, it's, it's actually not so analytical, right? And this is where we shift from a more intellectual cerebral mindset to a more somatic experience. It's like, it's not about whether you agree or disagree with your anger. It's, it's more about honoring the fact that you're angry, right? Anger is a normal human experience. Uh, anger is, is not something to be repressed. It is something to be guided, right? And so it's not about disagreeing with your anger or agreeing with your anger. It's a totally different framework. It's about honoring that feeling, right? Really getting quiet enough and present enough to feel the feeling, which is something that we don't like to do at all in general as human beings. Feel the feeling, but then if you, I mean, this is something that Buddhists teach, especially, especially in the Bodhisattva tradition. It's like, if you feel the feeling, you will notice the feeling starts to change. Like, this is something that Pema T- Chodron, Buddhist monk, teaches in a lot of her work. And so you see how we bring, like I said, different wisdom traditions into the theory of enchantment. Like if you allow yourself to feel the feeling, you will notice that the feeling changes. And that is part of what we mean when we say feel the feeling, but don't let the feeling take you over. As my mom likes to say, don't get carried away. right? Don't let the feeling carry you away. You, just because the feeling is powerful and palpable... Doesn't mean that you can't bring conscious, autonomous choice to be in relationship with that feeling. So it's a, it's actually a really important distinction, right? Because I think, I mean, I know that in, in, in academia, uh, especially we tend to intellectualize, hyper intellectualize everything. And we're, we're really trying to bring all of our senses, all of our faculties, not just the mind, which obviously, or not just rationality, which is obviously a powerful tool, but can be used as a defensive mechanism in service of self deception, right? So we're not just bringing that intellectual rationalization faculty, we're also bringing the wisdom of the body and trying to allow ourselves to feel all the feelings without being carried away by those feelings.
1: Oh, that's well said. Yeah. Do you also try to, um, when you said about how people tend to uh and and yourself and myself as well to identify with the positions that we take which can uh lead to problems when when people then criticize those positions and we have overly identified with them and then we take offense um Mm -hmm. do you do you teach strategies for that such as you know like um ways of alienating, of subtly alienating the person from their position, such as, you know, instead of saying, you said, you might, you might talk about the position as if it's not even theirs necessarily. It's just an object to the side. So you're sort of giving them that space to choose not to identify so strongly, but like, um, as, as opposed to attaching it to them with your language. Is that, is that also something that you think is important?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's very well put in general. You know, the first, the first practice we have people do, whether it's in our online course or in our, uh, workshop is called the who am I practice, where people will ask themselves, who am I? Or like, I'll ask myself, who am I for three minutes? And everything that arises, I say thank you. And the practice is to, uh, respond by identifying Things that I find positive about myself and things that I find negative about myself and to say thank you. Mm. And we we do this for two reasons. Number one is so that we if if we start to recognize that when we stereotype other people, we're simultaneously stereotyping ourselves. We can then translate that into an awareness of how we project our insecurities onto others. So for example, if I know that in some contexts i'm hardworking and I can and i can express gratitude for that facet of my being and in other contexts i know that i'm lazy and i can like, express gratitude for that facet of my being i will be less likely to project stereotype of laziness onto other people or if i do project the stereotype of laziness onto other people i will be more conscious of when i'm doing it and be able to recall that projection mm. and so I, I think this goes to the sort of objectification that you're talking about The ability to separate myself from my beliefs or separate myself from my the way I perceive the world, which the fabric of reality itself is constantly changing, right? Mm. Um, So if I can be able to see that I as a human being am constantly changing, that I as a human being... Am as John Verwecki says, you know, cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto says, like inexhaustible. What it means to be a being is fundamentally inexhaustible, constantly changing. Like I will cling less strongly to the ideas that I have. And I will also be able to perceive the person in front of who's standing in front of me with this, you know, very different political opinion than me. I will be able to over time with practice see that person as separate from the beliefs that they have, or the belief that they happen to be espousing in that moment, right? Because, again, even though we are always conscious of it, the only constant in the universe is change.
1: Hmm. That's very useful advice, especially, I think, uh, <laughs> this week um, mm-hmm. for many people. Uh, can you share a personal story or experience that perhaps deeply influenced your views on on identity on race on the issues that you that you teach other people to think more uh, intentionally about a personal story
0: um a personal story hmm It's funny i feel like everything i've been saying i feel i feel deeply personally connected so i'm just trying to uh this is interesting so in december this past year in in 2022 Mm -hmm. uh, i did ayahuasca for the first time and when you do ayahuasca at least when you do it with the shamans that i did it with there's like a musical aspect so the shamans are singing music while the medicine is working through you. Mm-hmm.
1: Was this and, was this in? Yeah, go ahead. Were, were you in Peru or? Where were you?
0: I was. I was not in Peru. Oh, okay. I was in an undisclosed location.
1: Okay. No worries. <laughs> okay. Um,
0: but I was. Uh, yeah. So so there's music involved in the process, and. Huh. Six months later, I realized that there was a connection between let's say the Peruvian shamanistic traditions relationship with music and African-Americans relationship with music. And I thought about this as I thought about the blues. Hmm. I'm a very musical person. I grew up in New Orleans, birthplace of jazz. I play guitar and I play drums, which might be obvious considering I brought those two things up earlier. Um, and I like to, I also like to produce music and I like to sing. And when I think of the blues, the blues is a musical tradition created and developed by African-Americans in order to transmute sorrow, mm-hmm. right? And the idea as the great late jazz critic, Alfred Murray said, the idea behind the blues is that by singing the blues, you get rid of the blues. Mm-hmm. And this is related to what I said earlier about being with what is in order to transform what is feeling all your feelings. And this is what is happening within the ayahuasca shamanistic tradition. It's what's happening in the African-American music, musical tradition. It's what happens in many cultures uh, as it relates to music in particular. And I, it dawned on me that this is perhaps the deeper meaning of enchantment. This is like specifically etym- etymologically speaking, this is the chant in enchantment. Right, like this is the idea that I also found in Kundalini, right, where like you can actually enter into a deeper relationship with discomfort such that discomfort starts to move and starts to change. But you cannot get there unless you have the audacity to actually feel your feelings. And so that personal experience that I had during ayahuasca, as well as the experience the relationship I have with playing music and like I have experienced this personally like I have been a melancholic person all my life and I've also been a musical person all my life and I have seen how sorrow can be transformed when it is actually sung as opposed to again trying to repress it right or trying to just let it just allowing it to completely take over your life and paralyze you. When it is sung, when it is reflected, when it is expressed in a in a in a ritualized container it moves and I think this is true for most of our feelings as human beings and I, I also think that we would probably be more likely to solve more of our disagreements, more of our conflicts more of our problems that we have with one another if we actually were able to enter into ritualized spaces to you know, sing our shit out, for lack of a better way to put it. And that is, that is, in a deeper sense, the chant in enchantment. That is, in a, de- in a deeper sense, what enchantment is, is ultimately trying to get at.
1: Mm. Yeah, one of the saddest things is not letting yourself, not allowing yourself to be sad when you need to be. It's yeah. really profound. And when you talk about sort of like the communal uh uh expressive um catharsis it it makes me think of uh i'm not religious but it makes me think of church or like you know especially like baptist or other traditions where there's a lot of singing and a lot of sort of cathartic musical expression together in a in a sort of spiritually focused setting um Mm -hmm. and there's not uh another way to really i think that's a really valuable experience But I think it's only available to people who are within certain religious traditions. If you're not, there's really not another place, unfortunately, where you can often have that kind of experience, unless maybe you you have an ayahuasca experience, or maybe if you have a really profound experience at a a music festival or something, but usually uh, there's not like once a week where you're going to get that fit in, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think, historically speaking, it was more pervasive in, like, pre-industrialized cultures. Hmm. And so it's not, in it, my reading, can be very, uh, there's probably shortcomings to this reading. However, my reading is basically that um, it's, not, it's not necessarily religious in the way that we think of religion in the contemporary modern period, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, but perhaps rather that like in pre-industrialized societies, it was more likely to be found in smaller communities, that communities had their own rituals and communities had their own, you know, uh, ways of processing grief and processing trauma that were particular to those communities um, and the more those communities became industrialized, the less likely you were to find uh, this in those communities. That's my very premature reading, but I think there's something there. Mm-hmm. so I don't think it's necessarily like religious versus secular um, but then again, maybe maybe the entire concept of secularization is actually a very modern concept, a very recent concept. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe there's something to like how industrialization overlaps with secularization as well. I'm not sure.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I I just wish that there was, I think it is a valuable experience that isn't available to many people, especially in certain countries. I wish it was more available um, without necessarily being attached to other Uh, you know, uh, ideological architecture, but, but um, yeah. Uh, So um, another question I wanted to ask is, is in comparison, in comparing uh, your system to the, um, I guess the more traditional, well, it's strange to say traditional DI hasn't been around that long, but uh, the more sort of uh, mainstream approach, to, to di, mm-hmm. do you think that it, uh, obviously you're trying to offer something, um, better or maybe more holistic or healthier. Do you think <laughs> that the other approach is harmful, that it promotes division? Um, and if so, how do you think that it does this?
0: Um, just trying to recall some of the writings of Ibn Kindi. And Robin D'Angelo as I think about this question, <laughs> like my immediate gut level reaction is to say yes, it's harmful. But I want to have specific things that I can cite as to as to why it's harmful. I think it's basically harmful because it violates the first principle of the theory of enchantment. It 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 treats entire groups of people as though they're caricatures, it absolutizes the perspective of entire groups of people, both black and white. Um, it, it treats one group of people, namely people of color as again, perfect, perfectly pure victims. And it treats white people as, if not um, at best, like privileged oppressor light, um, at worst, perfectly monstrous caricatures, and this paradigm is deeply religious actually um this is a this is a uh argument that john McWhorter has made um it's a deeply religious paradigm, but it's also a deeply uh, puritan paradigm and so in some sense, you could argue that it's actually incredibly it makes a lot of sense that this would come out of the American zeitgeist. America is a deeply Protestant country. America is a deeply Puritan country. Uh, Regardless of how much we want to convince ourselves that we are somehow a secular society, in many ways, we are not. In many ways, we're deeply, whether we're on the right or the left, deeply subconsciously Protestant, right? The country was founded by people who were protesting religion in Europe and, and that sort of sensibility continues to this day. We are always looking for the pure victim. We're always looking for the perfect monster that we can scapegoat. And, you know, obviously this is wrong because it violates the basic understanding of, the, of another religious idea, I would say, which is that every human being is made in the image of the divine. Every human being is sacred and every human being is incredibly complex. And you cannot reduce a human being to their skin color uh, to these immutable characteristics You cannot it is wrong to simply you know put up put up uh, um put forward a value system a moral value system based upon a person's skin color to say that a person is black and therefore inferior is obviously unethical immoral uh and also to say that a person because they're, they're white, essentially, is ethically inferior, is also immoral, unjust, etc. Um, so I think that in many ways, the mainstream, although, you know, there was just a piece in the New York Times decrying Kennedy's anti-racism, which is interesting. But, yeah, um, the, the mainstream is mainstream, in fact, because this has been the mainstream of American thought since arguably the founding of the or one of the mainstreams of american thought since the founding of the country has been this very black and white pure impure mm. you know that scarlet the, uh, the scarlet letter right famous book you know i certainly read in high mm-hmm. school mm-hmm. as part of english literature yeah so uh, in some ways it's i mean it's deeply upsetting but it's also very typical of the American zeitgeist.
1: Mm. Oh, am yeah, indeed one of the one of the things that has troubled me with the sort of um with this uh, I suppose I don't know if it, if it would fall under DEI analysis but and I don't know the exact phrasing it's it, the the gist of the sentiment is uh there's a slogan for it but uh intentions don't matter but, oh w- w- wait what is it impact over intention mm-hmm. impact That's over right. intention is yeah. that Okay, yeah, that I find to be deeply insidious because especially when you're dealing with people like like yourself and you're trying to get people to sort of like open up so you can maybe show them that they are, let's say, for instance, uh, behaving in, in racist ways or or mm-hmm. you're just trying to do some basic interpersonal conflict resolution. For me, I find that you always have to try to get at like the per, like they like, what is in their heart? What are they really like? If someone um, were to say something uh, racially insensitive without realizing that it is, because maybe they're uh, of an older generation and they don't understand that you know uh, that term is no longer in use and now it's considered offensive, but they say it with all complete innocence. Um, I think it's really important to recognize that innocence because that that's probably someone who's going to be much more open to um dropping the use of w- the term that they that they deployed or what, whatever it might be they simply didn't know uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone who if you if you are able to look into their heart and see that they are operating out of malice it mm-hmm. makes all the difference in the world and the idea that it doesn't make a difference <laughs> at all and that we should just treat these two people the same if they have said the same thing to me is is not just not productive, but it's actually deeply immoral to to discard Mm -hmm. the first one or treat them like the second one. I I find that to be very, very troubling. Um, I always try to, you know, to whatever extent I can see into a person's heart and, you know, ask myself, is this person basically trying to be decent, even though I might not like what I'm hearing? And I feel like that's something that we've lost or at least that is lost in the, in the DEI discourse.
0: Well, I think that one of the reasons why it's lost goes back to a lack of attunement with oneself, right? Like if I'm attuned, then I can, I can hear where a person is coming from. If I'm Mm -hmm. attuned to where I am, I can hear where a person is coming from. And I also don't have to receive whatever poorly stated thing they said. I, I don't have to receive it in a, in a way that is harmful to me because I, because I can hear where they're coming from. This mm. is where attunement and listening becomes really deeply important.
1: Yeah, true. And just basically being able to connect with people or just listen, just yeah. like being a really good listener, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you would think that that would be uh, just a, a fundamental skill set in every, in every toolbox of every DEI trainer.
0: Um, well, I think I suspect that even outside of the world of DEI, when people hear you know something like "here's how to be a good listener," their eyes probably glaze over because yeah. they're not they're not necessarily used to that. But also, quite frankly, out boring. Um, but I I think I hear it differently because I have a musical background, uh. so my relationship with it is very. Different, And I think that if people could understand, here's how to be a good listener in the same way they understand, here's how to be a good drummer or here's how to be a good guitar player or here's how to be a good singer, they might hear it differently or might land in a different way for them.
1: <laughs> That's interesting. So their inability to hear is, is impacting how they hear the message on how to hear. They're not, they're exactly. not hearing exactly. how to hear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably more pervasive than we even realize. I'm sure I do it in ways that I'm not even aware of simply because it's not, you know, you have to sort of not only hear others, but learn how to hear yourself before you can, and hear your own internal sort of talk before you can Mm -hmm. uh, catch on to those things sometimes.
0: That takes a long time
1: (laughs) to be able to do. Yeah. That, that, that kind of self-awareness is uh, a long road. Yeah. Um So where do you think all of this is headed uh in terms of uh are the current uh for lack of a better term the current discourse and the the DEI atmosphere uh it it's not I mean if you had asked me a year ago I would have said that I didn't think it was that bad or mm-hmm. or as bad as I currently do a few things have happened like the Richard Bilt's toe uh, incident, which uh, I'm sure you're aware of um, and and then also the reaction to that, which was very divided mm-hmm. but there was a lot more on the side of the trainer who I thought was that was completely just abusive and inappropriate um, mm-hmm. and uh, I saw a lot of support and that made me think okay, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're not moving in the direction I thought. Maybe, maybe, we, maybe it's going to be a few more years in the same direction before the pendulum starts to swing a different direction. But what do you think about that, and where do you think we are, and, and where do you think we're headed?
0: Well, the truth is I don't know, <laughs> which isn't a satisfying answer. I, you know, like I said, there was a piece in the New York Times just last week uh, that, I mean, it was kind of a surprise. Um, mm-hmm. but it was basically like, yeah, we knew that Kendi's anti racism was a bad idea or something like that, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. really? You did? Like, that's surprising. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, headlines like that suggest maybe that there's going to be a turn. I, I, I think that, especially as we go into in election year you're going to see you know polarization you're going to see all the things we saw in 2016 uh and in 2020 yeah. uh with regards to again people over identifying with whatever political uh person they're voting for or political ideology they associate with uh and then feeling under attack and then projecting those insecurities as defense mechanisms onto the other other party right you're going to see unfortunately that and again where there's no where the people have no set of tools to deal with the emotions that are rising and falling within them then the capacity to repress which ends up if you repress your emotions you end up unconsciously acting them out and if you you know, there's either that or you can just skip that part and unconsciously act them out. Right. So without the without tools to deal with that, you're still going to see incredible polarization, incredible dehumanization of people across the aisle. And so the tendency or the inclination to feel kind of like, quite frankly, like bloodletting or Mm -hmm. desire or need to scapegoat is it's very much going to probably be present especially with the coming election year and so regardless of whether or not Kennedy's model is waning in influence we will still have these issues that we will need to deal with and and navigate uh, over the next year
1: mm. yeah yeah I fear you are correct probably yeah. going to get worse before it gets better especially with the election coming up yeah um but i am very hopeful especially with uh individuals like yourself um out there fighting the good fight and um and others and uh i think i think there's a there's a there's an awakening taking place i think there's a shift as you said there's a shift i just um like you i also don't really know i can't really put my finger on the speed of the shift or you know when things are going to move but i do see I do see a kind of gentle tide beginning to swell. Um, mm-hmm. that, that gives me hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, I, I suppose that's a good note for us to close on, a note of hope. Um, yes. where, where can people find you? you do you have a, a, you have a podcast coming, The Heart Speaks?
0: Well, the Heart Speaks has been out for a while now, so oh. folks can listen to, to episodes on there if they would like. Uh, also, people can go to theoryofenchantment.com, to check out some of our offerings, our curriculum, our online, you know, our, our workshops, for example. And people can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at cvalbury if they're so inclined. Uh, and I would encourage people to take up some kind of musical practice uh, or, you know, some kind of movement practice, whether it's music, whether it's dance, whether it's jujitsu, uh, <laughs> to get themselves... <laughs> Uh, you know, processing and some of the ways we talk about today.
1: Uh, that's all fantastic advice. Yes. I hope, I hope people do that and, and, and check out your website. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, David.
1: Yeah. Have a great day. Take care.
0: You too.